Hello, I'm Derek Walker, the pastor of the Oxford Bible Church. Today I'd love to share with you about the God-man prophecies. These are so important. And uh, the Old Testament predicts the coming of a Messiah. And this Messiah would be the Savior of the world. And also the King, the ultimate King of the world. And uh, we know as believers in Jesus that he fulfilled these prophecies. But the interesting thing is that many of these prophecies actually predict that the coming Messiah is not just a great man, but God himself. And so I call them the God-man prophecies. The gospel proclaims that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the good news. We celebrate every Christmas that God cared so much for the human race and its terrible predicament that he became one of us in order to save us from sin and hell and to redeem us to himself forever. John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And that's a name for Jesus. And the Word, Jesus, was God. And this eternal Word became flesh. He became a man and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so God the Son became the Son of Man. And there's no more important message I could bring you today than to declare the truth and to establish it in your heart that Jesus Christ is not just a man, but he is fully God. He's God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And because he's God, he's worthy of our full devotion, our absolute love and loyalty, the total submission of our heart and life, our wholehearted worship and service. That's expressed by the Christian confession that is the outward sign of one who has been saved, and that's when we say Jesus is Lord. Romans, Romans 10 says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this is the declaration from a believing heart that Jesus Christ possesses the absolute and final authority that only belongs to God. And secondly, it expresses our personal submission to his authority as our Lord. And since Jesus is the Lord God, he's my absolute Lord, master and owner. And that's why the early Christians refused to confess Caesar is Lord, even when they were threatened with death. They were even willing to die for their stand because to confess Caesar as Lord would be to acknowledge him as their God. And so give him the honor that only belongs to Christ their true God and supreme Lord. They were not refusing to submit to Caesar as, as a human ruler, uh, as their Lord with a small L, uh, for they were good citizens, submitted to God's word, which told them that they were to submit to the authorities. So the demand that they must confess G Caesar as Lord was more than accepting his right to be their earthly ruler. Rather, it was a command to embrace Caesar as divine and to worship him as a God, as their God. And likewise, our Christian confession that Jesus is Lord is a declaration that he is our God, the one with supreme authority over us, to whom we submit and who we worship. And this is the definitive confession of any true believer in Jesus Christ, that Jesus is Lord. And that means he is God. And therefore, he has supreme authority over us as our Lord. And it also expresses our personal submission to him as our Lord and our God, just like Thomas did. 
uh, when he, uh, and Thomas exemplified this faith, when he met the risen Christ and worshipped him. In John 20 it says, After eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them, and Jesus came, the doors being su shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus confirmed that Thomas was an example of a true believer, as shown by his confession of faith in Christ as his God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. Therefore, a true faith in Christ involves believing that he is God and submitting to him as our Lord, our final authority, and worshipping him as God. Notice, Jesus accepted worship from Thomas just as he received worship from other people. But as Jesus himself said in Matthew 4.10, he said, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This confirms that Jesus claimed to be God, because uh, you should only worship God. And uh, if he wasn't God, he should have uh, corrected Thomas for calling him God and worshipping him. But instead, he commended Thomas for his faith. Indeed, he even assured Thomas that because he believed in him as his Lord and God, he was now blessed with eternal life, along with all those who believe in Christ in the same way, even if they haven't seen Jesus like Thomas did. He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, like you, Thomas. So, Thomas is given to us as an example of someone who's demonstrated a saving faith in Christ and who has been blessed with eternal life as a result of his faith. And that's confirmed in the next verses. Because it says, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that's talking about his deity. And that believing that you may have life, that eternal life in his name. So to receive eternal life, we must believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And that means our eyes need to be open, just like Thomas's, to see that Jesus is not just a man, but God himself in human flesh. And then to respond like Thomas by receiving him as our Lord and our God, and confessing him as such. Therefore, it's essential for our salvation to know and believe that Jesus is both fully God and fully man, because believing in the true Jesus is the key to eternal life. Just as Jesus said in John 6, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. And he said in John 8, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's the name of God. I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him because they knew he was claiming to be God. John 8.24 says, Jesus said, I said to you that you will die in your sins for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Therefore you must believe in the deity of Christ to be saved and receive forgiveness of your sins. We see the same truth in John 5. After Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, it says in uh, verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because not only did he break the Sabbath in their eyes, but also he said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. 
They understood that by calling himself the Son of God, he was claiming to be God. And so they tried to stone him for blasphemy. In response, Jesus didn't back down on his claim. He didn't try to say, oh, you've misunderstood me. Instead, he continued to make the strongest possible affirmations of his deity and his authority as God, God's only son. For, for example, verse 23, um, he said, it was the Father's will that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Well, how do you honor the Father? You worship him. So you could say, all who, God's will is that all should worship the Son just as they worship the Father. In other words, they should honor Jesus equally as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son, he said, honor him as God, does not honor the Father who sent him. So it is vital to know the true Jesus, who is God. For if we deny his deity, we do not know him, and neither do we have the Father. Well, the deity of Christ is the very same foundational truth that Jesus emphasized in Matthew 16 when he announced the formation of his church. He said that this was the key revelation that was required for any man to be blessed with eternal life and to become part of his church. He started by asking his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered the question by declaring his deity and his messiahship. He declared he is, you, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. The fact that Jesus was not just a man or an angel, but God himself in the flesh, must likewise be supernaturally revealed to you by God. And the result is the blessing of salvation and eternal life. If you still think of Jesus as less than God, as some created being, then this has not yet been revealed to you, and you are still in your sins. You have not met, and you do not know the real Jesus, the Savior, who is the divine Son of God, and you're still unsaved. And then in verse 18, Jesus added, And also I say to you that you are Peter, and that's the word Petros, which means a little stone. And on this rock, that's the word Petra, which is a massive rock, speaking of Jesus himself. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. Praise God. So he's saying, you are Petros and I am Petra. Jesus is the rock. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. So the church of Christ, consisting of all those who believe in Christ, is built on the foundation rock of Christ himself. Peter here is, is used as the prototype example for all believers, uh, the example of all believers um, who receive the revelation from God that Christ is the Son of God and they embrace it and they believe it and they confess that Jesus is their Lord and God. And in response to Peter's confession of faith, Jesus assured him that he was blessed with eternal life and now was a living stone built on the foundation of Christ himself as part of his church, the, the temple of the living God. And so likewise, in the same way, when anyone believes and trusts in Christ as their Lord and God, they are united to Christ who becomes their rock of salvation, their foundation, their righteousness and their life. And thereby, they receive eternal life and they become part of his church. 
And Jesus confirmed his promise of salvation by adding, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. See, until now, any man who died, his soul left his body and went down through the gates of Hades into God's prison under the earth. But now, Jesus promises those who believe in him in the new covenant will not go down to Hades when they die. The gates of hell will not prevail over them, but instead they'll go up to heaven. For now, believers in Christ, for us, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Praise God. So, so far, I've just shared a few of many New Testament scriptures that declare the deity of Christ, that Christ is God. But this isn't just a New Testament revelation, because the Old Testament is full of prophecies of the coming Messiah. Uh, who will come and save mankind from their sin. Uh, and they declare plainly that as well as being fully human, this Messiah will also be fully God, God in the flesh. And we're going to see that these messianic prophecies consistently tell us that this coming Messiah is divine, the unique God-man. Therefore, the New Testament is perfectly consistent with the Old Testament revelation. And it proclaims that all these prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so in the remaining time, I want to look at some of these messianic prophecies and show that they speak of the Messiah as being both God and man. And so when Jesus claimed to be God and man, he was claiming to be the fulfillment of these, these prophecies. And the Jewish leaders were wrong. They were unbiblical to reject his claims on the basis that it's impossible for a man to also be God. In fact, it was necessary for this Messiah to be God himself, for one of his main missions was to be the saviour of mankind, saving us from the dominion of sin and death, from hell. And the Bible is clear that only God, can be our saviour. As Jonah declared, salvation is of the Lord. Only God can save. As he himself made clear in Isaiah 43, he said, I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no saviour. And so we're going to start and look at some of these prophecies. The very first one is in Genesis 3.15, and it was given to God, given by God, just after man sinned. And he says, Actually, he's speaking to Satan and says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And here's the key character, her seed, that is the seed of the woman. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. This was a prediction of a coming champion, a man born of a woman, born of a woman who would crush Satan underfoot and thereby destroy his power over mankind, and who at the same time will be bit by the serpent, by, the, by Satan, receiving his deadly poison of sin into himself. And this was fulfilled by Christ, who took the poison of our sin upon himself when he died on the cross, praise God. And then by his victorious resurrection, he crushed the devil underfoot. So this champion is described as the seed of the woman, which means he'll have no human father which is a prophecy of the virgin birth. Since the sin nature is transmitted from Adam through the man, this means that unlike the rest of the human race, he'll be born without sin. The implication is that because he doesn't have a human father, God himself will be his father. In other words, he'll be the son of God, so that he'll be divine himself. God manifest in the flesh. This is confirmed by Eve's statement 
when she named her firstborn son Cain in Genesis 4. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. But that's a bad translation, because the word from there is not in the Hebrew. It literally means, says, I have acquired a man, the Lord, and that's Jehovah. Or, in other words, I've acquired a man, even Jehovah. So Eve believed that this promised Messiah would be God himself in the flesh. And in this she was correct, but she jumped the gun in thinking it was Cain. She realized soon enough that Cain was not the sinless Messiah. In fact, he was a, a naughty boy. Well, uh, Isaiah 7.14 picks up the story and confirms that this Messiah, the seed of the woman, will be God himself. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, that's the virgin prophesied in Genesis 3.15, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And that means God with us. So here is a human child who is also God. The seed of the woman is called Emmanuel confirming he's the God-man. And the New Testament claims this prophecy was fulfilled by Jesus. It says in Matthew, She will bring forth a son, and you'll call his name Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So you see, God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And then Isaiah 9.6 gives a fuller description of this God-man, Messiah. For unto us a child is born. That describes his humanity. Unto us a son is given. This describes his deity. Because it means he's pre-existent. The pre-existent eternal son of God who is given to us for our salvation. Then it says, and the government will be on his shoulder in his name. Which means his nature will be called wonderful. That's miracle worker. Counselor. He'll... He's a teacher. And then it says, mighty God. And this is the phrase, El Gibor, which is a plain statement that he's God. Uh, in fact, the next chapter of Isaiah, chapter 1021, uses the very same name in a way that is clearly talking about God. It says, the remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. And then it fi finishes off by saying, he will be the everlasting father, which means the source of everlasting life and the Prince of Peace. Then we have Micah 5.2. It tells us where the Messiah will be born, but also reveals him to be the God-man. But you at Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you will come forth unto me the one to be ruler in Israel. And of course, this describes him as birth as a baby. But it goes on to make clear that his real beginning is not in Bethlehem. Because it says, whose goings forth, whose origins are from of old, from everlasting, from eternity. In other words, this describes his deity. So after saying he will be born as a baby in Bethlehem, it then emphasizes he'll be different from other men because his human birth is not the beginning of his existence, but his origin is from eternity. So he is the everlasting God who at a chosen time in history takes, will take upon himself a human nature and body and be born in Bethlehem. And the New Testament, of course, confirms that this was fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. That's in Matthew chapter 2. Well, um, we will go on now to talk about um, 
Jesus, he was being born in Bethlehem. Why? Because that was the city of David, where, where David was born. And God had promised David that the Messiah would be one of his sons, which is why one title for the Messiah is the son of David. God promised David a royal house and a dynasty that would rule forever on the throne of David in Jerusalem, and that one day one of his descendants, the Messiah, will reign forever over an everlasting kingdom. That's in 1 Chronicles 17, and we call it the Davidic Covenant. It shall be when your days are fulfilled, God speaking to David, that when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed, that's the Messiah, after you, who will be from one of your sons. And I will establish his kingdom, and he will build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. And I will be his father, and he will be my son. In other words, he'll be the son of God. And I will not take away my mercy from him, as I took it from him who was before you. That's all. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Notice this Messiah is an everlasting person. He will not just be a man, but the everlasting God. And Jeremiah 23 confirms this. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a righteous branch. Uh, and, and it says, a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper, executing judgment and righteousness in the earth. And this righteous branch coming forth from David to be king speaks of the promised Messiah in his humanity, the son of David. But the next verse speaks just as clearly of his deity. It says, in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Sidkenu. His name is one of the names of God. He's called Jehovah. If he were not God, he would not be given the name Jehovah. Because God says in Isaiah 42, he says, I am the Lord, I am Jehovah, that's my name, and my glory, which includes his name, I will not give to another. So it would be wrong for anyone to be called God to be called Jehovah. So the Messiah, you see, is Jehovah himself. And Psalm 2 calls this Messiah king the son of God. It says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, which is literally his Messiah, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And this was fulfilled by Jesus at his resurrection and ascension. When he was established as the king, he was given all authority over the earth. And then in verse 7, the anointed king speaks. Jesus speaks. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you, ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And so this anointed king, the Messiah, is also called the divine son of God, who will rule over the whole earth. So he must be God. And Psalm 72 describes the reign of this Davidic Messiah, king. 
the total perfection, the absolute righteousness, the endless duration and the worldwide extent of his reign means it can only be describing the reign of the promised Messiah when the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God. In verse 1, he's described as both a king and the king's son. It says, give the king your judgments, O God, and righteousness and your righteousness to the king's son. And this will only mean that he is the son of the ultimate king, God himself. Therefore, his reign will last forever. It says, they all fear you as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. In his days, the righteous will flourish, the abundance of peace. Uh, until the moon is no more. His dominion will be worldwide. It says he will have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. He will endure forever and men will be blessed. They will find their salvation in him. It says his name will endure forever. His name will continue as long as the sun and men shall be blessed in him. All nations will call him blessed. Therefore this Messiah King, uh, described as the Son of God, can only be God himself, manifested in human flesh, confirming what we've seen in the other messianic prophecies. Proverbs 30 verse 4 asks the crucial question, what is the name of the Son of God? It says, who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? And then it asks, number one, what is his name? And two, what is his son's name, if you know? Well, we all know the answer to the first question, which asks the name of the creator God. For it is Jehovah, or Yahweh, or, or Yehovah. But this reveals, in Proverbs, it reveals that he has a son. God has a son. The son of God, or God the son. And it asks, what is his name? What is the name of the Son of God? And it talks about who is the one who's descended from heaven and ascended to heaven. This, we know his name, don't we? We know the one who descended from heaven and became a man and, and suffered for, and died for our sins. And then he ascended back to heaven. This is the work of the Son of God. And we know his name, praise God. His name is Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth. He's our Lord and Savior. He's our God. He's our Lord, in whom we are blessed with salvation and eternal life. Jesus is the Son of God. And he fulfilled all the God-man prophecies of the Old Testament. And therefore, it is right and appropriate that we worship him with all our heart. Amen. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the vision of this ministry is really to, to spread the in-depth teaching of the word of God as far and wide as possible. And we are so grateful for those who, who have helped us in this way. Thank you so much for all your help. Thank you for watching. Join with us at Oxford Bible Church every Sunday at 11 a.m. Greenwich Mean Time for our live stream service or join us at Cheney School, Headington, Oxford, OX37QH. You can watch more of our teachings on our Roku channel and Derek Walker's YouTube channel. All Derek Walker's books are available in printed and Kindle versions in all Amazons worldwide or online with other great products. 
where you can also support our programmes at www.oxfordbiblechurch.co.uk or by calling 01865 515 086.